He killed my sister, okay? It was slow and it was painful and I had to watch the whole thing, so please... Get out of my way. twice on two different buses at two different times. How is that possible? There's like 16 people in the world with a photographic memory. Can anyone explain to me how I've met every single one of you before? I'm not willing to believe it's some insane coincidence that we're all on the same bus at the same time. Why is news from seven years ago on the 356 bus? There's some late memories. Do you really want to know? I think I can end this. Just because no one can think of a better idea does not mean this is a good one. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. My guest on this episode is David Fairhurst, the writer, director, co-producer and co-editor of the claustrophobic, mind-bending psychological thriller Reaching Distance, the trailer for which you've just heard. Logan, played by Wade Briggs, a cynic with a photographic memory, follows his sister's killer, Matt Day, onto a night Rider bus. As the line between past and present begins to blur on the journey, Logan uncovers he has a complex past with much more than one passenger. It's an absolute gem of a film and one I enjoyed very much. It's a great example of what dedicated, independent filmmakers can produce on a shoestring budget. Reaching Distance recently completed a limited film festival and Q&A run across Australia, but the filmmakers are hoping to reach more cinema screens early next year before a digital release. Anyway, enjoy. He does have a conscience in some way, but he's kind of like a uh, just a, a madman who can out-drink, out-last, out-fun out everyone all the time. Luke's interpretation of that was uh, probably more extreme than what I had written on the page or envisaged myself. The day that we were going out to shoot the open water scenes, we were told that there were some dead whale carcasses that were bringing in real tiger sharks and great white sharks, and they'd been sighted in the area. We were told not to go in the water. But I could just see instantly that how talented Rhiannon was, and there was just, it really blew me away. There is still a bit of a, a boys' club out there for sure. And also with Dee Wallace, she gave me great input on the script for this to make her have a very pro-choice stance throughout the film. And the simple fact is, the movie, the whole thing occurs because a right-wing guy blows up a clinic. 
very organically somehow the name The Comet Kids popped up and we sort of just kind of based the movie around that name. Like it happened really quickly. We kind of thought like that's a really great name for a movie. Like what is, what, who are The Comet Kids? We just thought it was very, very important to uh, start writing more roles for women and uh, women not just, as I said, as girlfriends, mothers and people in love, but women who are their own people as we are. <laughs> David Fairhurst, uh, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, obviously, we're here to learn about uh, this mind-bending new film, uh, Reaching Distance, but I want to get to know you a little first. What's your earliest film memory? Um, oh, I think the first one I ever saw was uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Is that the one, the, the Santa movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was the first thing my parents ever took me to see, and I, I hated it. I hated it so much. Um, I remember getting in trouble for finding another girl and just playing tag in the, the aisle. Um, for most of the films are on time. <laughs> I don't think we got kicked out, but we've got a stern talking to. Um, I, I think the first film that I remember kind of being really blown away by was Toy Story. Uh, and that was, I think, the first kind of cinema experience that I, I remember kind of being so incredibly swept up in it and very likely generating a lifetime love of film. Uh, but it didn't start well. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it about that film? Uh, I don't know. Well, I think looking back on it now as, uh, as a screenwriter and a director yourself, the, the sheer kind of cleanness of that plot is so, it's so well put together. There's not a wasted line. There's not a wasted scene. And it introduces kind of this world with all these rules and something like 30 characters and they all feel fleshed out and then it feels so kind of seamless. Um, and I, I really kind of appreciate that kind of clean storytelling. Um, and I think, you know, that's why it, it connected so well with, you know, uh, the Pixar's first film out of the gate. Um, I've been reading uh, the the head of Pixar at the time, his um, book Creativity Inc. lately, which I cannot recommend enough uh, to anyone who's in kind of any creative industry. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely... I'm not a huge fan of screenwriting books, but that one has been kind of incredible. In what way? Um, so I'd recommend that. He just kind of goes into like the Pixar process, which I guess is kind of the utopian version of a creative process um, for kind of the, the system that they have, which is just so open and collaborative and that kind of best idea wins thing. Um, and they're so willing to kind of kill their babies uh, and uh, – just do whatever is needed to make the film the best that it can be. Um, and kind of, they, they're very good at communicating that mindset to everyone involved in the film. Um, so like, I, I don't like in, when you're making an indie film for, for no money, that's not exactly the situation that you can do when you can't just kind of throw out the script on the, the first day of shooting, but, um, to kind of see that, that's the ideal system that they've figured out and has resulted in so many incredible films, I think is quite inspiring. Um, did you want to make films from an early age? Yeah, I was kind of a failed child actor. Um, so I, I think I got my first agent when I was like nine years old or something like that. And then just, um, catastrophically failed at a number of auditions. Um, uh, so I kind of had an odd experience that I, I had the opportunity to be on a few sets and kind of 
get an idea of how it worked and kind of fall in love with the behind the scenes aspect of it um, during that period on the, the little stuff that I worked on. Um, and then I got to do a bunch of really cool theater stuff, which was kind of the, the eventual creative outlet I, I had in that time. But um, I was kind of inevitably, inevitably just forced to start making my own stuff because um, that was the only way I was ever going to be able to act in anything. So um, I got a kind of crappy little camera and started making my own home movies. And eventually that kind of just grew and grew and grew and grew. And by the end of high school, I was making four or five short films a year. Um, and it was those shorts that got me into film school and it kind of all kind of flipped and all of my kind of passions moved behind the camera. Wow. Uh, so you made a handful of short films, as you just said, including uh, Rara and uh, The Conversationalist, which were both comedies. Uh, I found that interesting yeah. considering the more dramatic themes of reaching distance. Uh, were those early comedies purely experimental or is that uh, the genre of film that you wanted to make? Uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm not hugely attached to a certain genre in any way. I'd like Rara and The Conversationalist were terrible, terrible Tropfest films <laughs> that I made. Uh, that was kind of the, the cool thing about Tropfest when you're, you know, 17 and making a film to, to enter it in is it ends up on IMDb and you feel so kind of professional and established. Um, and then years later, they kind of haunt you by these just God awful films, um, that are kind of plaguing the back end of my IMDb. Um, uh, yeah, like I, I don't think I'm, I tend to kind of flip back and forth between whatever I'm writing at the time, between kind of more serious stuff and then, uh, comedic though. I do always find that there's always, I like that kind of light and dark in whatever genre, um, uh, that I approach that I, I kind of don't like things that are just very set in a tone and don't vary at all because I, I can find that can get a little bit dry, um, on either end of the spectrum. Mm. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned your IMDb page because that's where I found a clip from Ra Ra, um, oh. which is hilarious, by the way. It, was, it looked pretty funny. I want, it made me want to see the whole thing. Right. It was, uh, I was obsessed with Russian history at the time for some reason, um, and I really loved the, the story of the attempted assassination on Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Um, where they, they tried to poison him and that didn't work and they stabbed him and that didn't work and then they shot him a bunch of times and that didn't work. Um, and then they bundled him up and threw him in a frozen river and that didn't work. Um, and it was just kind of this great slapstick comedy of history. And so I, it was my attempt to kind of do a, a modernised, almost like silent film slapstick comedy version of that. Um, now that i found out there's a clip out there, though, I might need to kind of just you know, napalm it to death and get it uh, off my history. Though it was made in high school, so, I, you know, I can't – hopefully that's not held against me. you got to leave that kind of stuff up there. Um, oh, there's, yeah. there's a scene where someone's trying to escape in a blue sleeping bag. Was that you in the sleeping bag? Yeah, it was. It was. Like, it was in my period of me acting in my own stuff <laughs> that continued all the way to the, the end of film school, really. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, – yeah, I, I almost fell off a waterfall and died making that film. Wow. Because um, it kind of ended with one of the characters going off the edge of a cliff. Um, and then uh, to get that shot, we kind of had somebody laying at the bottom of a waterfall. And my great OHS idea at the time was just to lean over the edge of this waterfall with a camera to get this kind of crane shot that would have been impossible otherwise. And Ooh. I, of course, lost my footing um, and 
almost fell off this waterfall whilst like holding onto a tree root and just going, guys, guys, <laughs> the other actors to come and save me. Um, it was pretty uh, precarious that all of those kind of early shoots were um, no rules, kind of running around. We had the police called on us for a few times. I tried to make like action thrillers and running around with BB guns and um, it never ended well. But, uh, you know, I think that kind of DIY approach to filmmaking is ingrained in me to some level and then certainly you know came out with a lot of the way that we approach things on reaching distance oh brilliant uh, so you acting in those short films was that purely out of necessity or were you still trying to hold on to uh on to um pursuing a career in acting uh yeah you know like i i, I still have ambitions to maybe act here and there um but it'd be more if there's like a little interesting character role in, in something where it's, you know, three or four scenes, um, I would probably continue to pursue that. Mm-hmm. Um, just cause I, I really love that. And I think there's an interesting dynamic when you're a member of the cast with the cast instead of just the director. I think once they kind of play with you to that aspect and they kind of get on the same level that they are with the rest of the cast, that that kind of breaks down some of the barriers that can get built between that kind of cast director relationship. And I feel that um, that was something I had to learn on reaching distance was not being in the cast at all. Um, for kind of the first time, I kind of had to learn how to navigate that without using some of the tools that I, I used to um, in a lot of my short film and like web series projects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So to do like a, you know, Spike Lee kind of thing of that he kind of appears here and there and <laughs> some of his films, uh, that's kind of the, you know, dream scenario, but, uh, yeah, you never know. Um, before we get into reaching distance, tell us a bit about your experiences working on Strangerland. Uh, it was directed by the incredible, uh, incredibly generous, uh, Kim Farrant and stars Nicole Kidman and Hugo Weaving among others. But what was your experience like? And, uh, I mean, it was a limited experience, but did you learn anything from that? Uh, no, well, actually I kind of, I got a lot of really interesting insights in post on that film. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I worked in, uh, during the shoot, um, uh, a friend of mine, Amy Lee was the director's attachment and she kind of got a lot of us kind of film school people on for like little roles here and there throughout the film. And so I worked in the art department during the shoot and I spent like over the course of a week, maybe 20 minutes on set because we would just kind of, we'd arrive and pack stuff into trucks and, um, cause they shot half the film in Sydney and then the other half in Broken Hill. Yeah. And I was kind of involved in getting all of the art department stuff prepped and ready to, to make the move from, um, Sydney to Broken Hill. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't really get to have that many great onset experiences during the shoot, but then I came back as the, uh, videographer for the like Blu-ray special features during post-production and did shot all the interviews with um, the kind of the entire, uh, you know, director, producer, uh, composer, editor. Um, and so we did these really long, like 90 minute interviews and I was able to get these great insights from all these like really talented and incredible people about mm-hmm. how the project came together. And, um, inevitably the, the stuff that ends up on those blu-rays is kind of the, the fluffy promotional <laughs> yeah. stuff but, yeah. uh, and on the editing like room floor there was some really kind of interesting insights about kind of the more painful side of, yeah. of getting a film made um and that was that was really really fascinating so it's kind of like the perfect role for someone that wants to 
go into directing themselves is to kind of get this really candid insight um, without the kind of extreme pressure that you can get as a, a PA on some of those kind of projects where, you know, the, the whole set is waiting for you to bring the, whatever the toothbrush or whatever <laughs> the actor needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed doing kind of little roles like that. Um, cause they were amazing learning experiences. Um, so tell us about the early origins of reaching distance and how it all came about. Um, well, I was working on a film called drown, uh, as the best boy. Um, and, because of the way that that film was shot, it was all kind of night shoots on Maroubra beach for kind of 80% of it. Um, and, uh, because that was, uh, like a deferred payment gig, I had to work like a retail job in the day. And so I would shoot all night and then work all day and then shoot all night again. And I kind of have these blocks of like 36 hour days, um, where like there were other people on set that were like hallucinating giant foxes and things like that. Um, but I, the way that that kind of lack of sleep uh, hit me was I would get deja vu really, really intensely Wow! Um, to the degree where I'd be like, I've lived this moment before something is wrong with the world and get kind of a little bit paranoid. Um, and so inevitably once I was kind of sleeping again, I um, kind of wanted to do something with that idea of that. What if, of what if it isn't deja vu? What if something was actually incredibly, wrong with time or reality or blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that was kind of in the back of my head. Um, and then there was also just the practicality of, uh, I tried to get another feature off the ground, uh, with Kane, our producer before, um, which was kind of a higher budget bracket and had a lot of locations and a lot of cast. And, um, we just kind of saw that we didn't have the resources to pull something like that off. And mm. so I was wanting to write something that was essentially one location. Um, and a limited cast of characters that would be achievable with the resources that we had. Um, and it was just on a bus ride home in the middle of the night that pretty much the, those two things came together and clicked into this story. Um, and during the, the course of this 30 minute bus ride, pretty much the entire story and concept and a lot of the core characters kind of all gelled at once. Um, yeah. And then it was, it was fairly quick to write. I think it was a few months at most to get the first draft out and it kind of all, it was just kind of this mess of stuff swirling around in my head. But then once it all clicked together, it was a relatively fast process to, to get it down on paper. Wow. I find that fascinating that all of this came about from that experience on, on drown. That's amazing. Mm, uh, yeah. I think, uh, there's a lot of stuff about just the way that my brain responds to stress, uh, <laughs> has, uh, found its way into the film. Wow. Um, so I'm not going to attempt to give a synopsis for Reaching Distance because it's hard to do so without spoiling anything. Uh, so I'm going to leave it to you. What's Reaching Distance about? Uh, Reaching Distance is about uh, Logan. He's a man with a photographic memory uh, that's witnessed his sister's death in a car crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the story of the film picks up on the night where he finds the man responsible for that car crash and he tracks him onto a night Rider bus in the middle of the night. Uh, and on the journey, he's plotting his revenge, but uh, it kind of all comes undone as he realizes that he's met every single passenger on the bus before. Mm. Uh, and as he's trying to figure out what's brought them all together, the line between his memories and reality fractures altogether, and things get crazier from there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a heavy film and it does deal with some uh, difficult themes. Uh, my next question was going to be whether there were any personal experiences which inspired this story, but you've just given us the great story about uh, about your time working on Drown. Uh, was there anything else which inspired it, uh, you know, as far as um, the sister's death and, and stuff like that goes? Uh, yeah, I, I was in a car crash where I, I got hit by a drunk driver who ran a stop sign, um, and hit me and totaled my car. Um, which was, uh, a pretty rough couple of weeks. Um, thankfully I got away kind of physically fairly good, just a little bit of whiplash. Um, but when you're kind of a broke student, your car getting destroyed, uh, can be a bit of a trying period. Um, and so I think it was a lot of kind of the I really hated the guy who did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of all consuming kind of anger is quite poisonous, um, just to yourself. Um, and I kind of wanted to explore what effect that has on someone, someone who has kind of a perfect memory and holds onto these grudges with perfect clarity. Um, and is kind of stuck in the past and has this inability to move on. Mm. Um, so I think that that was definitely a personal experience that kind of bled its way into the script. Mm. Quite wow. substantially. Um, mm. So, so what kind of research went into the uh, medical medical aspects of reaching distance, and and how important was it for you to uh, to be as accurate as possible? Uh, yeah, well, I, hmm, uh, I I did do a fair bit of research. Mm. A lot of it was like YouTube is just such a great resource for um, these kind of mini documentaries and TV pieces on on stuff like photographic memory, mm. um, and it was kind of really fascinating listening to interviews with people that have uh, that condition or, or a form of it um, in terms of that a lot of the the way that I think most people experience uh, their memories is very emotional mm. um, and it's not kind of just this this clarity of, oh, I read this book and this was the page. Like it, it tends to be presented in um, a lot of TV and media where it, it makes you a great detective or a great lawyer or something like that. But the kind of real life thing seems to be it, it kind of messes people up emotionally because they kind of have this huge bank of really vivid emotional memories kind of swirling around in their head. And I wanted to bring that into the film and present the concept of a photographic memory as more of a curse than a blessing mm-hmm. um, and see uh, you start out with a character who has become quite bitter and jaded and a bit of a, a dick to an extent uh, at the beginning of the film. Um, and I think that was something that, that kind of solidified as I, I did more research. Mm. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Uh, you assembled an, an impressive cast uh, for a first-time feature filmmaker. Everyone here is terrific. The, all the performances were great. Can you tell us about getting uh, these uh, great actors to come along for the ride? Uh, excuse the pun. Yeah, like w- we were a little bit sneaky uh, in the way that we approached it. Um, in terms of uh, we've had experiences approaching agents before and you just hear nothing back and just because you're not a name or you don't have the right connections, you can be dismissed out of hand pretty quickly. Yes. Um, and so the approach we took was getting a a friend of ours who's quite an established actor and I'd, I'd edited a number of his short films before. Um, and because he's worked in the industry so long, he knows everyone. And so it was kind of a a situation of, we would be quite diligent in terms of looking at people's past work, um, and, and making sure that they were the kind of 
would be perfect for the role and then going to, to him and saying, do you think you could sneak the script to this person for them to at least read it and be familiar with it by the time that we uh, approach their agent? And um, so at least where we kind of have a bit of momentum going and they're familiar with it and we're not just going to be dismissed, they actually have to respond. Yeah, yeah, one step because ahead. the cast member has probably called the agent and went like, oh, I got sent this thing, it seems interesting. Mm. You know, what are the dates? What are they paying? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it helped that I think a lot of kind of smaller Australian films, it's all deferred payment or it's no payment at all. Uh, but, like, we, we were paying the cast mm. um, and industry standards. Like, yep. it was um, scale, which is, you know, not much, but it's enough to pay your rent and feed your family and yeah. uh, things like that. And I think that uh, helped kind of put us over the top of even the agents knew they were getting their, their cut of the commission. Um, so that made the whole process a lot simpler. Um, and once we got a few good people on, once people see who's attached, they start getting interesting and just kind of snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. By, so by the time that we were kind of doing a bit of like chaotic last-minute casting in the lead-up to the, the actual shoot, um, we uh, were able to attract all these really brilliant people. So how high on top of the list was Matt Day for you guys? Uh, very high. Well, we didn't think we could get him at first. Right. Um, and so we, we were like, oh, he'll never do it. Let's, let's not even try. Um, and then, uh, we had someone else that we were talking to about that role and there was a lot of kind of chaos surrounding that role. And, uh, so we actually cast Matt quite late and we were like, let's at least just send it to him and try. Um, and then like a day later, we're like, yeah, he's interested. He'll do it. And we're like, oh, okay. Um, and he arrived with very little prep. Um, mm. and just nailed it. Like yeah. he is, he's incredible. Like yeah. I think I've said this on every interview about the film, but I think pretty much every piece of his coverage in the film is a first or a second take. Yeah. Um, like he's just this acting machine that just comes in and does exactly what you want. Um, cause he, he peppers you with questions at the very kind of top of, of the film and his prep and he just makes sure that he knows everything he needs and then he just comes in and, and does it. Um, and he sets such a precedent for the rest of the, the cast as well that, um, that that was kind of one of the downsides to the, the way that we shot the film is because it's set on a bus. Every time that you aim the angle, angle, angle the camera anywhere, yeah. you're capturing other people in the background and they're yeah. reacting to what's happening and things like that. And so there's all this time where the cast have to be on the bus even though they're not the main subject in frame. They might not even have dialogue and so – um, the fact that he never complained and he was always kind of the first on set and would just kind of be a pro about absolutely everything, no matter how hard whatever we were doing was, just set an incredible tone. So I, I own that a lot. Did uh, did everyone change when Matt was on set? I mean, did the actors change? Or were they, uh, you know, did they look up to him? Uh, yeah, well, I think like a lot of our cast kind of knew one another from mm-hmm. various things. So I think that was helpful that they already kind of had a camaraderie. Yeah. Um, but I think it definitely helped for like maybe, you know, some of the younger cast just, uh, I think they were on kind of their best behavior, behavior whenever Matt was on set. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, though everyone was like, everyone was a pro. Like that was kind of the thing that, um, we were kind of shocked by that. We, we thought that it, there would have to be like a lot of kind of smaller scale people in some of the smaller roles. But, um, the fact that like Sophia Forrest came in and, and did what is, comparatively a small role even though there's a lot of screen time because you know everyone's on the bus at once yeah um it was really really incredible um you know i think uh, frederick 
who plays a security guard in the film, um, was one of the few that didn't have a lot of huge acting credits, but mm. he kind of came in and we kind of restructured the role around him and it, it kind of all just kind of gelled so perfectly that um, I think by kind of like day one, everyone was kind of running efficiently and um, all settled into their roles really well. So we got very, very lucky. Brilliant. Uh, just out of curiosity, what's your favourite Matt Day role? Ooh, I, oh, I don't know. I think this is – Matt probably is tired of everyone saying rake, but I'm <laughs> finally kind of going through rake in detail at the moment mm-hmm. um, and really, really loving it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's that's uh, kind of where my, my heart is at the moment. Um, yeah. Did you see him in uh, the new uh, Wolf Creek? Uh, yes. I didn't get to see the entire season. Oh. Um, I was kind of weirded out of the, like the first season had a lot of friends of mine getting brutally murdered. And I was like, this is weird. I don't enjoy watching this. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I, I watched a few episodes on that. I'm still alive, but just, <laughs> um, I should finish it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good friends with uh, Eddie Baru and it was difficult to see him getting his hand cut off in that second season. Yeah. He loses some fingers. That was, <laughs> that fingers. was gross. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Eddie was a great one to have on set. Like that wasn't, he was another person where the role was written for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the usual thing that Eddie does as well, that he's just a little bit like kind of the, the biker or the, the tough guy. Mm. Uh, but he's a, the biggest teddy bear in real life. Oh, um, yeah. The loveliest person. So to kind of see him playing kind of more in that tone uh, was great. Um, yeah. So you say that uh, the role was written for Eddie. Uh, did you know him, him, him prior to this or had you seen him, him in something? No, I'd read an article about, him that was kind of i think he went viral a few years ago based on his tattoos in yes, particular yes. all of his tattoos are drawings that his kids did yeah um and so he's kind of covered in all these kind of really beautiful touching uh doodles from his kids um i think seeing that kind of made my heart melt a little bit um and so he was kind of always in the back of my mind of this for this character that uh, initially when you see him comes off as just kind of an unhinged lunatic but the more that you get to know him it turns out that he's probably the the one who knows what's going on the most out of everyone and um it's kind of this yeah lovable teddy bear oh Um, perfect so that that worked out great and there was a period where it looked like eddie couldn't do it and i was just so lost for what do we do now yeah um the fact that the just the sheer timing of it worked out um was amazing Oh, lovely. Fantastic. Um, the editing has been a real talking point, and uh, within the first 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes of the film, it's quite jolting uh, for viewers, uh, but it quickly calms down as you begin to understand this world that we're in. Uh, I was interested to learn that Adrian Powers is credited as a co-director along with yourself. Uh, Adrian worked on a few of Steve Jaggi's films like Riptide and Chocolate Oyster. Uh, at what point was uh, Adrian brought on and and uh, you know and why didn't you edit the whole film yourself? Yeah, we kind of had a, a bit of an interesting approach with the way that I had done it because I, I'm an editor myself and that's mm. how that's kind of my bread and butter for a lot of the work that I've done in the past. Um and the process I've always kind of had as an editor was I will do the rough draft and then I will leave it to another editor to do the fine cut. And I will say, this is, this is what the best I was able to do in my head, make it better. <laughs> um, and then kind of just get out of their hair and let them run with it and yeah. do what they think is best for the film. Yeah. Um, and that's always been my process of 
it kind of allows you to show an editor what you had in your head, but then allows them to kind of take that and rework it in the way that they think is best. Mm. Um, and that's definitely the approach with, with Adrian. So I kind of gave him the rough cut. Um, and then he, he was great in terms of he's a very good kind of audience substitute. And so in terms of like clarity of story and making sure the emotional journey hits and all of that, like really big picture structural stuff. Um, he's fantastic at that. And I think that, uh, the editing can be quite frenetic, um, and a little, uh, it's very stylized in yes. certain parts of the film. Um, mm. and that's very much me, mm. um, because, uh, I think that's kind of the, the sort of stuff that I, I love, but Adrian kind of came in and cleaned a lot of that up and made sure that it, it really felt, um, that you got hit by all the important emotional side of things and that the story made sense, um, which can be risky when it's as uh, kind of tricky and psychological as, as the film is. Um, and then I was able to take what Adrian did and then I kind of polished it up for the, the final cut and um, kind of put a few like little stylistic touches in and uh, in that aspect. But it was, um, he's a, a really fantastic collaborator and mm -hmm. he's, there's no ego in it with him and he's all about making sure that the experience for the audience is as clear and as good as it can be. Mm. Um, so that was great. Um, like I, I went to the film school that I did because I saw one of Adrian's short films uh, during one of their kind of promo nights. Wow. Went, okay. If, if someone could get something like this made here, this is the right place for me. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, so it kind of all came full circle and uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the short. Was it Scruples? I think uh, Johan Earl, um, who was like one of the lead cast members in that, he ended up coming aboard and helping us out with uh, some color coloring stuff. So it was kind of this great secular, uh, thing, um, that he was able to kind of be so involved. So, um, yeah, I, I cannot recommend Adrian enough if you're looking for an editor, <laughs> but I'm sure he's, he seems to be drowning in work at the moment. So I don't think I really need to plug in. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. Um, so tell us about some of the challenges that you faced on this shoot, because I know you had a uh, pretty uh, shitty bus, which caused a few headaches early on. Uh, but, uh, what were some of the other challenges that you faced? Uh, uh, yeah, outside, of, if you want to hear all about the bus, we have a, a web series that you can go to on uh, our Facebook page, which details that, uh, it's just the sheer challenges of, of shooting a film set on a, it's a two meter by 10 meter space, if that. Um, and you know, it's scenes with eight characters all interacting at once and just the getting coverage that is interesting and dynamic and, uh, tells your story in that tight of space, um, is really tricky. Uh, and it, it's difficult for the actors as well because they want to be able to explore and try stuff um, with the blocking and you kind of have to be that guy that's like, you can't stand there because we can't see you mm -hmm. because there's this block in the way or um, this person will be standing in the way. And so you just kind of have to deal with this kind of constant uh, restriction of the space constantly working against you. Um, a lot of the way we kind of got around that is instead of doing hand-drawn storyboards or something like that is because we bought the bus six months before we shot it, uh, Goldie, our cinematographer, and I just brought some uh, stand-ins up to the bus and we shot the entire film with these stand-ins. Um, and then I took all that footage and edited this like awful stand-in version of the film. Um, and then 
kind of figured out what was working, what wasn't, and then went back and reshot all of the storyboards again uh, after kind of learning all those lessons. And so by the time that we came to shoot the actual film, we'd kind of already made it twice. Wow. Uh, and so we knew where we could put the camera. We knew, uh, can we fit a dolly in here? Can we do any sort of complex move? Like we kind of knew all of our limitations going in, um, which meant that whenever we were going to be able to shoot a scene, I could just pull out an iPad and play a version of the scene so everyone was on the same page, which is helpful when you're shooting, you know, six pages a day, um, like we typically were. Um, but yeah, still it's a very restrictive environment. I'm, I'm guessing on whatever next project I work on, I'm just going to be enamored by the idea of I can put the camera anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, instead of like, we have two options and both of them aren't great. Let's figure something out. Um, which was kind of the approach for a lot of the kind of big dialogue, very cast heavy scenes. Hopefully the next film's out in the desert or some wide open space. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just the sheer opportunities. Um, yeah. Um, so reaching distance has done the familiar rounds of an Australian film. It's uh, been on the festival circuit and the Q and a circuit. How was that experience been for you as a filmmaker? Uh, it was really, really great. Um, I mean, particularly for a first time kind of director as well. Um, and we didn't have a distributor attached as we shot the film, which is a bad idea. Uh, but kind of luckily we got Athabasca on and they really wanted to champion the film. Um, and so after kind of a little bit of unsurety as, as production was happening to just see it in front of an audience, um, and see the kind of reactions we were getting was fantastic. Um, and to, to premiere it at Cinefest Oz was an incredible experience as well that we were kind of, there's a lot of like really big films there, but we were, kind of treated like uh, all of these other massive, massive budget films. Mm. Um, so I think that that was really, really encouraging um, uh, to kind of be, to have the, you can often feel like the, the doors are closed to you uh, in the Australian industry if you don't have um, many kind of projects that have been completed. And so I think the fact that we, we were in cinemas and um, the Cinefest Oz embraced us so much. We kind of had that, that door open up to us. Mm. Um, so that was, that was really fantastic. Um, and then the fact that we've been to kind of most of the major cities in, in Australia and um, uh, our publicist has done such a great job of getting us a lot of local press that kind of most of our Q and A showings have all sold out um, and word of mouth seems to be spreading. So um, like while we're not a, a, it's, it is a limited release. Um, the the way that it has been approached has kind of been targeting areas, building up an audience and then coming to them. Um, I think kind of having these really passionate packed screenings um, has been great as opposed to, well, I guess you kind of just dump it in some theaters and hope some people go and yeah. you maybe go along to a screening and see that there's, you know, 12 people in there. Um, the fact that we've kind of made events out of it uh, wherever we've gone has kind of, at least just as a filmmaker has made it a very emotionally um, satisfying experience so far. Uh, though we're hoping to kind of, uh, we have plans for more screenings to be happening uh, either late December or uh, early 2019 as well. So I think the kind of making these big events has been quite helpful in terms of setting us up for more screenings because word of mouth is kind of so important for a project like this, particularly yeah. one that is aimed at a younger audience. Um, and so the fact that everyone 
after these event screenings is going out on social media and sharing photos of the Q&A and um, raving about it has kind of really set us up nicely for where we want to take the film next year. Mm. So after all of this, has, has the experience left you thinking that the Australian film industry as a whole is in a good place or, or as a filmmaker do you feel like it, it, it needs a lot of work? Uh, ooh, ooh, there's, hmm, that's a very <laughs> complex question. Um, and as like, I don't know how well I can answer that considering reaching distance was made so outside of the traditional industry. Like yeah. there was no government like screen Australia or create no South Wales support. Um, we, we found the money ourselves. We put it together ourselves. Um, I, I think uh, we still have a little bit of an outsider's perspective. Yeah. Um, and I guess we're one of the lucky ones of certain films. They, they have that approach and then they don't find distribution and they kind of linger in nowheresville for a while. Um, so I, I think the fact that there are distributors like Athabasca that are willing to take a chance on smaller films and um, try to put them out there in an interesting way theatrically is really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, kind of where things are going to go with the, the we, we need to kind of do more event cinema showings. And it's good that there does seem to be that approach to it now to mm. kind of get younger people off the couch, watching Netflix to, to the cinema to see Australian films. Um, so it, it, it's encouraging to see that the industry is adapting to that. Um, and then also using these events as kind of, uh, promotion for when it inevitably lands on VOD streaming or, or whatever. So I, I don't know if the Australian industry is in a great place, but the industry is definitely adapting to the new situation that we're in, um, which is a lot of younger people aren't going to the cinema to, to see Australian films as they would have, say, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, though it does seem to be that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy catch-22 thing of all the people at the top that we've spoken to have said, or oh, young Australians don't see Australian films. And so therefore they stopped making Australian films for young people. And mm-hmm. therefore there's nothing that young people want to go see. It's all stuff like ladies in black, which whilst great film um, is not for a 19 year old that kind of wants to have a bit of a thrill ride or, or see something that's more in line with the kind of stuff that they are watching on, on streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like we we want to try to break that mold by creating stuff that is for that is made by younger people for younger people um and isn't kind of tied up with having to be i guess the the screen australia wording is culturally significant um <laughs> which can sometimes which i can be quite a nebulous thing but sometimes means that it needs to be quite worthy or an issues film and we wanted to create something that was kind of more of a thrill ride and more of a character piece, um, which I don't know would have, if we had gone through the proper channels, I don't know whether it would have survived mm. um, in the form that it, it kind of came out as. Um, cool. uh, so what's next for you? Uh, there's kind of a lot of irons in the fire at the moment. Um, I think we're, we kind of don't have to, immediately jump onto the the next thing just yet as mm. reaching distance is kind of continuing um into early 2019 um i'm kind of in a good position of i i've written something like 20 scripts um uh not all of them are good maybe like five of them are good uh but it means that i kind of have these five projects that uh i kind of have all 
kind of boiling away in different areas with different people. Um, so I've got a, a web series that, uh, well, probably not a web series. We might be kind of looking at more of like a six part TV or streaming run, uh, with that, which is kind of going back to my roots of comedy roots a little bit, which is kind of a, a very high concept rom-com, very Scott Pilgrim-y, I guess, um, that's kind of ticking away at the moment and that we're going to be doing some kind of more heavy writer's room stuff with, uh, in January. Um, and then a couple of other features, um, some that I've written, some that I haven't, uh, we're kind of just exploring those at the moment. So I don't, I don't have anything firm that I can talk about at the moment, but we've kind of, um, yeah, approached a lot of different areas with a lot of different people and we're just kind of going to see, what sticks um, and just continue with the theatrical showings of reach and distance and then uh, putting it out on uh, kind of international festivals and then VOD. And that's probably going to chew up another, another year of our lives as well. (laughs) Uh, As fun as that sounds. Um, Yeah. So I I don't have anything firm just yet. I I should be doing a a fun little short just as a palate cleanser uh, in the next couple of months, just to, just to get out and direct something again, because I've been on post on reaching distance for the past year and a bit. So, um, uh, that should be a bit of fun, but I, I doubt it's going to be, um, you know, changing the world anytime soon, uh, with the kind of, it's going to be a very kind of gorilla stripped down black and white, uh, fun little caper film. So, um, Hopefully I'll have news of that relatively soon. Great. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, I was genuinely impressed with this film. Uh, congratulations on it. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, thank you for being so supportive of the film throughout pretty much the entire process of making it as well. It's been very encouraging to have kind of Street Australia, uh, Cinema Australia, my God, uh, kind of, you know, being a cheerleader for us the entire time. So thank you. Oh, no problems. That's what we're here for. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It was great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. For all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews, you can visit www.cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Cinema Australia. Cinema Australia.